the family of a local teenager says she never would have left home without calling. It's praying for the best. I want my daughter home, man. And if she can't come home, I just want to know where she's at. These posters around the towns of Livermore and Jay beg anyone with information to come forward. Posters that Richard puts up every spring, never losing hope. arrest in a nearly four-decade-old cold case. Thanks to cutting-edge DNA technology, the arrest happening exactly 39 years to the day. When Parabon Nanolabs used that sample to create 3D models of the suspected killer's face. It's heartbreaking. We miss her, and we're going to find her. We're going to keep looking until we do. It's like a never-ending nightmare. It doesn't end. It keeps returning and coming back. back to Located Lost. This is our first episode of Season 2. Tonight, we talk to Sarah Turney, whose sister Alyssa Turney went missing May 17, 2001. Hello. Hello, Sarah. Yeah, hi. Hey, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good. It's great to talk to you. Oh, thanks. You too. So I'm here with Jeff also. Hello. Hi, Jeff. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Oh, pretty good. So, Sarah, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got started into this endeavor that you've you've gone into? Sure. Um, you know, my name is Sarah Turney, and um, the reason I'm in podcasting in the true crime community is because of my sister, Alyssa Turney, who went missing in 2001 when she was 17. How did you decide to use podcasting as a platform to try to reach people about this case? So Alyssa's case came to the point where essentially there was no movement. You know, I was being told that the case was going to be presented for prosecution to the county and it had been six months with really no word. And I spent years talking to other content creators, people on YouTube, you know, people in podcasting, of course, and um, just trying to share her story that way. But after six months of really no movement, I wanted to step it up a notch and make my own content. So that's really where Voices for Justice, my podcast comes from is just a last stitch effort to, um, you know, tell Alyssa's story in a very complete way that had never been told before. And, and I, I noticed too that on your on your website you'd mentioned that was kind of like, you know, it's a, it's a different perspective of it too. That's kind of what you're aiming for is like people, uh, you know, there's a more sympathetic side to it. You know, the the family side isn't necessarily being shown in some of these situations, right? Of course. I mean, no one's going to tell a story like a family member would. And yeah, I mean, that's a big part of it, as I do feel like 
that is a piece that is missing out of the true crime community, especially in podcasting, is you don't really see a lot of family members going out there and making their own, you know, content about their missing loved one or murdered loved one, whatever it might be. So I thought, you know, there's a space in the market for it. It's a story I really want to tell. I need help, um, you know, in terms of the police and kind of pushing things along. So all those puzzle pieces really just fit together. And, you know, once I got my hands on, you know, Alyssa's pretty much entire case file, my goodness, there's like 3,000 pages. And I started reading through it. Oh, my I, word. Yeah, I, I knew, you know, more and more. I, I It just solidified it for me. I was like, I have to do this. And that's the thing, right? Your sincerity and your relationship to this case, it, it kind of draws the listeners in. I know it drew me in. Oh, thank you. I hope so. And, and I've got to say, too, your your website was is very clean. It looks very nice. And the your blog is very compelling, too. Actually, I got to the, uh, what was it called? The the part two of the, the brainwashing. And I was like, oh, where's the third one? So, oh, the third one's not here yet. Like, it's it's really engaging. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, the blog is definitely a work in progress. Um, I need to go back and update that specific post because... There's so much. The blog is really where I started telling my my own story, you know, but unfortunately, blogs just aren't as popular as they used to be. So I, you know, switched up to a medium that I thought more people would see. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. All right. So once you begin, tell us a story about what happened to your sister and we'll get into that if you wouldn't mind. Perfect. Yeah, there's so many rabbit holes in this story. So I'll just stick to mm. a very high level overview. Um so, I mean, essentially, you know, Alyssa went missing on May 17th, 2001. She was 17 and I was 12. Um, it was the last day of her junior year in high school. I was gone all day at a water park for the last day of seventh grade. And, um, you know, a lot of this, the story from this day does come from our father. So that's something to keep in mind. But uh, essentially, Alyssa is picked up early out of school by our father. It was a half day anyway. And, um, you know, there's a lot of speculation as to why he picked her up. And we don't really know why for sure. But before Alyssa gets into his truck to leave with him, she stops in her boyfriend's shop class and says, you know, see you later. And she also runs into a friend, Jessica, who she says, you know, I'll see you later as well. She had plans that night. She was going to go to graduation as well as a party. Um, But, you know, our our father picks her up and according to him, they go grab some lunch. He doesn't know where. He doesn't know if they ate there or took it home. But at some point, they come back home, get in a fight about Alyssa wanting more freedom over the summer. And then our father leaves her. He, um, you know, just leaves her to cool off. He goes and runs some errands for kind of an an unspecified time. The timeline is just so fuzzy um, due to the investigation. But he leaves Alyssa and then eventually comes to pick me up. I, um, you know, get back from school um, and my father's not there. So I go walk to a friend's house, which was, you know, totally normal for me. And eventually he does come pick me up. Um, I get into his truck and he says, Sarah, you know, your sister's not answering. Will you try to give her a call? So I give her a call. There's no answer. We go back to the house. It's probably about a 10 minute drive. And I enter her room first. And to the left is a, um, you know, her dresser with a cell phone and a note that said, you know, something to the effect of dad and Sarah, when you dropped me off at school today, I decided I really am going to California. Sarah, you said you wanted me gone. Now you have it. Um, Dad, that's why I saved my money. I took $300 from you, Alyssa. You know, and on the ground wow. were, yeah, it, it's intense. Um, 
And on the ground was what looked like the contents of her backpack, which I noticed right away because her room was always, always so neat. Um, but yeah, essentially we have this runaway note of sorts. So our father calls the police around 11 o'clock that night and says, my daughter, who is a marijuana user, is mad at me and left to her aunt's house in California. So that elicited no search from the police. Um, so really nothing happened, which is why that timeline is so fuzzy, right? Because no one was interviewed until there was a break in the case. In 2006, there was a gentleman who confessed to killing Alyssa. Um, you know, this guy wrote a detective and said, I'm going to make you, uh, you know, famous. I'm a serial killer. And the police now go... this is Thomas Heimer? This is Thomas Heimer, yeah. So uh. he confessed to killing, I think, 22 women, including J.C. Lee Dugard, who was found alive. Right. Um, so, you know, the police check it out and they determine pretty quickly that this guy is not telling the truth. The guy even comes out and admits, like, I think I was wrong. I don't think it was Alyssa. It, it must have been some other girl. But what this does is spark the first investigation to Alyssa's case. My goodness, you know, thank goodness. And um, pretty quickly, you know, they start to interview family and friends. And a lot of people are pointing fingers at our father. You know, he was strange. There was a lot of odd behavior things I didn't know about. Um, but the police look into it. Our father is pretty much uncooperative. He won't come down for a formal interview. He won't give DNA. He um, won't provide any surveillance video and audio from the time she went missing, which we can we can get into all the surveillance later. Um, yeah. <laughs> because there's a lot. Um, but yeah, oh, yeah, they look at all this. They see that my father's being uncooperative and they, they want these items from him. So they get a search warrant and they come raid our home. And they find a ton of video and a ton of audio, but they also find, uh, you know, the largest pipe bomb bust in Phoenix history. There's 26 pipe bombs with a plan to use all of them. So he goes to... <laughs> yes. Um, and this is the high-level overview. I promise it's the high-level overview. <laughs> um, oh, I know. I've, I've heard every episode. <laughs> but so, yeah. So, well, thank you. Oh, my gosh. You're so sweet. Um he goes to prison for 10 years, you know, and um, during this time, I come around because, you know, before this, I don't believe my father could have done it even for years after he went to prison. But eventually I come around and I go to the police and say, you know, I, I see what you see, you know, if with my father being the only person of interest, how can I help get these answers for you? We start working together and, and they tell me, they say, Sarah, when your father gets out of prison in 2017, we're going to arrest him for the murder of your sister. We don't want to do it while he's in prison because then he'll be able to combine sentences. And I'm in my mid-20s at this point or whatever, so I'm thinking, great, it's all handled. Everything's going to be taken care of. I don't need to do anything, so I, I don't. Right. Um, but my father gets out of prison, and they don't arrest him. And so I go and ask them what happened, and they say, we've changed our mind. Um, we're not going to do it without a witness or without a body, and we suggest you get media exposure. So that's when I started getting media and going on this crazy mission. And, you know, I go back to them in January of 2019 and say, I have all this media. What's going on? How can we get this figured out? And they basically say, we don't care about your media. We don't care about your petitions. We're not going to do this. We need a witness. We need a body. And I, you know, I say, good luck explaining this to the world because now people are interested in this case and you're going to have to explain why there's been no action, you know, when, when the evidence seems so apparent. And um, a right, they've, they've made their own monster by telling you to let everyone know about it, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, go tell the world about it, get this media. And I'm like, hey guys, I got it. And they're like, yeah, just kidding. We don't really care. Um, yeah. But a week later, many... of course, I get this email. 
<clears throat> excuse me, um, a week later, of course, I get this email that says, just kidding, we've changed our minds. We're going to go ahead and present this case for prosecution. And, um, you know, that was January of 2019. And here we are near the end of 2020. And there's still no answer. So that, again, I promise that is the very high level overview. Yeah, that was high level. <laughs> <laughs> there is so, so much how many, to go over. How many people follow you on social media right now? Uh, it depends on the platform. Um, you know, it, it ranges. I think the lowest might be Twitter at under 20,000. And the highest is TikTok at almost a million. Wow. Well, I can guarantee we'll get you at least two more people. So I'll <laughs> be good. I'll take all the people I can get. All right. Good. So to go back to when your father picked you up at school, what time was or no at your friend's house? What time was that? And what time did he pick up Alyssa? So I believe he picked up Alyssa around 11, but there's no records. When the police went back, you know, finally seven years after she disappeared, they went to the school and the school said, sorry, we don't keep records that long. Um, and as far as what time I was picked up, I don't really know um, because I wasn't interviewed by police until seven years later either. So I I just know it was sometime after school. He bought a duplicate truck, right? After he went missing? A truck that matched the pickup that he had? Yes. So one of the many interesting facets in the story is the fact that my father quickly sold his truck after Alyssa went missing, but he replaced it with this, you know, nearly identical truck and told no one. No one in the family had any idea until the police told us so many years later. So you didn't even notice it was a different truck. You just thought it was the same pickup he always had. Yeah. I mean, especially wow. I'm 12 years old. I think it's pretty easy right. to, to trick a 12 year old girl about a truck. I don't know. And I, you know, and I also just didn't care if we're being honest. And, and there, there's something else important to, to mention for listeners, too, is that he was he was a former uh, sheriff's deputy. Right. For it was only for a couple of years. But, uh, you know, there, there's stuff here that he would know about things to, to do and not to do. Right with with the uh, the missing persons thing, he he made it seem like it was no big deal, like oh you know she ran away but she told us where, um, and that's not going to elicit much of a response out of the police. Exactly, you know, as former law enforcement, he would understand the protocol for a missing child that's in danger versus the protocol for a runaway teenager who's on drugs. Those are going right. to elicit two totally different responses, and he would know that. Growing up as a latchkey kid in a small town in Maine, I always assumed I was safe. After all, unless it makes national news, murder isn't something people talk about around here. But that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Murder, She Told is a true crime podcast featuring crime stories, unsolved murders of missing persons, and baffling cold cases from my home state of Maine, New England, and small towns across America. These are the crime stories your hometown doesn't want to talk about. The mysteries buried deep in the newspaper archives of local American history. These are the homicides you've probably never heard of before. Through detailed storytelling and connections with family, friends, and investigators closest to the case, Murder, She Told will hit home for any true crime fan, whether you're from Maine or from away. Visit MurderSheTold.com to suggest your hometown crime story. And subscribe now wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
I'm Kristen Seavey, and this is Murder, She Told. So what was life like with your father growing up with Alyssa and your dad? So life for me was totally different than it was for Alyssa. I was, you know, for lack of a better term, and as much as I hate using this term, I was pretty much the golden child. I, you know, did no wrong in my father's eyes, and I was allowed to do whatever I wanted. And I I mean that seriously. I went to school when I wanted. I woke up when I wanted. I would stay at friends' houses whenever I wanted for, you know, days and days at a time. I just basically had no rules. And my father would always tell me, well, you're smart and you make good decisions. And, you know, thank goodness I never really got into trouble though I I certainly should have. Um, But yeah, so I mean, I had complete freedom and my father was kind of like my best friend. You know what I mean? He would give me rides everywhere I wanted to go. He would buy me pretty much whatever I wanted, even when we didn't have that much money. Um, I I was just spoiled rotten. And and how was that different for, uh, for Alyssa? So Alyssa had really, really strict rules. Um, he, you know, prevented her from doing a lot of things. He was always wondering about her friends. You know, he even made a a contract between himself and one of her friend's parents in order for her to spend the night for her friend's birthday. Things like boys couldn't come over and they would be, I think it was something like they would be in bed by a certain time. Just really, really intense. He would also watch her. You know, this is where the surveillance comes in, of course, is Um, We had exterior cameras on the house, which, you know, was no big deal. I felt like really cool and really privileged to have security cameras. But he also had a hidden camera inside of our living room vent that was there just to watch Alyssa. Um, This is in addition to a, a passive recording system on our home phone that recorded every single phone call going in and going out. Um, that was there since before either of us were born. You know, we we walked into our house and it was there essentially. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. You know, and in addition to this, there were, of course, more contracts that get scarier. Um, you know, he made Alyssa sign things like, I've never been sexually abused by my father. I've never been physically abused. Um, and some really graphic sexual things that are just really gross. Um, but yeah, I mean, he exhibited completely different behavior over Alyssa. Is- What's interesting is that he recorded everything, videotaped it, audio on phone calls. Yeah. How much video and audio do we have from the day that she went missing? Exactly. We have nothing from the day she went missing. But you've got years and years of it otherwise, right? Oh, yeah. You know, the the police, when they raided the home, they took all the audio tapes and there are tapes of us calling Blockbuster in the 90s. Um, There's, you know, tapes (laughs) that go back to the 70s. Just these like, you know, silly conversations that you wouldn't feel that are important to keep. But, you know, everything from Alyssa is gone. You know, even, you know, of course, after a week after Alyssa went missing, there was a phone call that came into our house from a payphone in Riverside, California. And our father says that that was Alyssa, you know, but oh, the recording system didn't catch it. Um, so it's really, really suspicious, to say the least. Absolutely. Now, how how was you and Alyssa's relationship together with, with you, you know, being the golden child and her uh, having a very strict uh, regiment was were, were you guys did you guys get along still with that it caused contention for sure I mean I would say we had a pretty typical sister relationship in terms of fighting right we would 
um, go into each other's rooms and that would upset each other. I would steal her clothes and um, all those things. I was the most annoying little sister. I will just (laughs) say it outright. I wanted typical. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to be just like her. So I would go in her room and steal things. I would, you know, um, she there was one time where she snuck a boy into the house and I was like, I won't tell dad, but I get something out of your room. Like (laughs) I I, I was not cool. Um, But of course, you know, there's all those really sweet moments that we had, just like all sisters do, where she's doing my hair and doing my nails and helping me dress and. Um, all those things. So I, I would call it pretty typical, but you know, Alyssa did have the weight of, um, being my only mother figure. Our mother passed away in 1993 when we were both very, very young. And so she shouldered that responsibility, not only for me, but you know, in the household in general, in terms of cooking and keeping things clean. And so I think there was a little bit of extra pressure and stress that caused us to fight a little bit more. Right. Yeah. And I, you'd have to understand that. One thing that really brought me into this, um, your podcast, is the episode where you have a video of, I believe you guys were out camping, and Alyssa is in the background. She says, Sarah, dad's a pervert. Like, to hear that on that podcast just blew me away. Like, that's really what sucked me in, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I try to use as much real audio and video as possible in, you know, when I tell this story, because I think it just speaks for itself. But of course, you know, in in making the podcast, I went through all of our home videos, which was so crazy. Um, And, you know, there's this just normal video of us camping or whatever, you know, him and Alyssa seem to have some, some type of stress between each other. Alyssa seems pissed off or whatever. Um, and then we're just, I'm just, I'm filming. I'm literally like eight years old and my dad's like, turn off the camera. And I'm like, no, I want to film me. Um, because, (laughs) cause I did whatever I wanted. So when he told me, no, I was like, yeah, right. Uh, Please. I'm going to keep going. Um, but I'm filming and Alyssa's like, Sarah, Sarah. And I'm like, huh? And you know, she says, dad's a pervert. And my dad's like, turn off the camera, turn, you know, turn off the camera. Um, and he eventually gets it back from me and he goes, Alyssa's a stupid moron. And I just, oh, yeah. I just skip away because yeah. I'm eight and I don't know what's going on. I'm just like, that's silly. And I walk away. So Alyssa would have been 13 at the time. Is that right? I think according to the timestamp, she was 12 actually. Oh, okay. So like what, what kid that age is going to say something like that? Exactly. Especially a 12 year old to even bring up that word, you know, especially with your male parent seems very awkward and uncomfortable um, unless, you know, of course, you know, she reported that she was being sexually abused. So that makes total mm-hmm. sense in that in that aspect. Some of the, the footage that I saw, and this was just from the, the website, because I, I unfortunately haven't listened to your podcast, but. Um, from the website, you know, some of the videos of the, the, the family stuff, like, seemed somewhat innocuous uh, at first. Um, just, well, like, her, him recording her when she's at work, I was like, something about it being, like, her first day. Like, just recording. I was like, okay, that's something I might do for my daughter. Like, just being kind of a weirdo. Um, but then, like, after hearing some of, like, him uh, interviewing, like, friends and friends' families and the contracts... And uh, it was stated somewhere uh, that, you know, it seemed more like a a jealous sort of boyfriend relationship. And that that seems to make a lot more sense. And it gets really creepy at that point. 
I totally agree. Um, you know, you can isolate any of these videos and not know the story and think, oh, you know, this is probably nothing. But once right. you put it all together, it, it really does tell a story and becomes kind of um, this this reference information. It's kind of like backup. It, it's almost proof, if you will. You know, when Alyssa writes these letters to her friends talking about how she feels our father's too overbearing, and then you see this video of him recording her, you're like, oh, well, that that makes sense. Right, right. It, it's creepy as hell. Yeah, that's been now, the common feedback. <laughs> <laughs> now, how many siblings do you have? So, technically six, if you count the sister I never knew about, which is a, a rabbit hole all in itself. Oh, jeez. Yes. Now, uh, how do they feel about this podcast? And Are they willing to come onto the podcast and talk to you about the case? Uh, no, they don't wish to be on the podcast. Um, you know, we all deal with things differently, and I try to respect how they feel and their actions as much as possible, but none of them wish to be involved in the podcast. But do they at least support you in, in what you're doing? You know, I, I wish I could say that they do, but unfortunately, they don't. Um, this entire case and this pursuit, you know, that the police put me on to get media has essentially ripped me and my siblings apart. Oh, wow. Sorry to hear that. No, that's okay. I mean, it's it's about Alyssa for me. Well, and that's the thing. The other thing about you is you're so strong. You know, you face your father. There's recordings of you talking to him, I believe, while he's at prison, correct? Um, and, and asking him questions, like tough questions, and, and calling him out on things. Like, you're a tough girl. You, you go against Phoenix PD, and you question them on the things that they're doing um, I've got a tremendous amount of respect for you Sarah oh thank you so much um, that was actually when he was out of prison face to face but yeah it's ugh, it's it's been crazy um, but yeah I mean I think people will do funny things when you have to like you'd be surprised what you can accomplish when you're backed into a corner and have no other options but now you didn't always believe that your father was guilty of this either though right there was a, a long while there oh yeah where you know daddy's girl sort of thing right exactly way too long it took me way too long to come around i mean my goodness it's probably been about five years that i believed that my father did this and Alyssa has been missing for 19 years um so i spent a lot of time thinking he was innocent right he's the uh that how, how did that that message from your sister did that seem like it was from her genuinely did you did you have any doubts then when you when you uh heard that you know you wanted me to leave so i'm leaving no i mean it, it looked like Alyssa's handwriting and it was confirmed that it was hers and i don't think i thought a lot of it especially that day you know what i mean as as a 12 year old who has seen my sister fight with her dad all the time i was like oh she's mad she'll be back so I don't think, you know, that day I took a lot of um, interest in the note or analyzed it at all. I mean, my goodness, mm -hmm. if I could go back, I wish I would or could. But um, but yeah, I mean, even today, like that part of the note seems um, a little out of place for me. It, it seems like a very shallow reason to be leaving. Right. Um, like out of all the reasons for her to leave our household, I don't think it was the fact that me and her fought. I think that there were, you right, know, better like reasons for her to nowhere. get out. 
Exactly. Exactly. And the, and the whole note, like you can sit there and deconstruct it and it just doesn't make sense. Right. You know, dad, that's why I saved my money. She didn't take her money. You know, there was eighteen hundred dollars in her bank account that was never touched. And the bank was less than a quarter mile from our house. There would have been no reason for her to get that to not get that money out. Right. And, and there like there was nothing that was taken, like her cell phone was still there. Like th- th- there was just a couple articles of clothing that was missing. Right. That's that's all that they could tell. According to my father, there were only a few items of clothing missing. But when I went in there, because, you know, after she was gone, and especially when we moved pretty quickly after, I, of course, went in there and, you know, all these clothes are mine now and I want to save everything. And (laughs) um, I wore her clothes as I I felt, you know, I think it made me feel closer to her. But that's all according to my father. So when I went in there um, and started taking stuff, I didn't see anything gone. You know, her favorite jewelry was still there. Her favorite makeup was still there. Pretty much everything. Not even a hairbrush was taken. Right. And what girl that age is not going to go with those things? Especially when you have, you know, hair down to, you know, the middle of your back like Alyssa. Her hair, like, she cared so much about her hair and it was so pretty. And she's been not take a hairbrush um, is really crazy to me. And, and also with her, uh, like, she was really close with quite a few people, right? She wasn't, like, an outsider. She was really close with quite a few people, like, fa- even within your own family, right? Like, she would have let someone know. Absolutely. You know, she had a steady boyfriend that she cared for a lot that she spoke to every day. She had best friends. You know, um, she was really close to our brother, John. She would have reached out to someone is what every single person in this case says. Right, and her her boyfriend didn't uh, didn't he try to to convince him that she was actually messing around on him to try and get them to break up? Yes. So there were some fights um, that were possibly orchestrated by our father. You know, um, I, I believe that actually the police proved that. But our father would go to her boyfriend and say, "Hey, Alyssa's cheating on you," um, which is just insane, and it would spark, of course, these fights between. Um, Alyssa and her boyfriend and just really unnecessary things. You know, one of the only things my father sent to the police when they first started investigating in 2008 um, was a video of Alyssa getting in a fight with her boyfriend Um, and another video Mm -hmm. of Alyssa making out with a a different guy on our couch. Um, So convenient. Exactly. Exactly. He he sent just the weirdest pieces of evidence, and in my opinion, he certainly tried to make it look like her boyfriend was involved. He said he was abusive, um, which I can find no one else in this entire world that can confirm that her boyfriend was abusive. Um, and just, yeah, it, it's really sad. It's really sad what happened with her boyfriend, and I feel really, really bad for him. Yeah. Now, wasn't there something with your uncle, I believe, had stayed with you for a little bit and was watching a videotape, pop something in, and then started what he believed to be Alyssa on the videotape? Yes. So it was um, my cousin, David, who was living with us for a little bit. He finds a VHS um, hand label because, you know, like back in the day, everybody would take a VCR and record. It is, in fact, um, a video of Alyssa and one of her friends naked from the waist up laying on our couch with a newspaper over their faces, just laying there motionless. How bizarre. Yeah. So it was Rhett's girlfriend that had gone on a trip one time with your father and some some weird things happened on that trip. 
Yeah, so it was um, his friend, essentially, and my father hired this girl, paid her, I don't know what amount of money, to um, drive him up north for a few hours. He said he was too sick to drive himself and, um, you know, enlist the help of this woman. And while they're driving up, you know, this is in the age where I think not everyone had a cell phone, so only my father had a cell phone, not, not this girl, and they're driving up north, and my father's phone is getting a ton of phone calls. And she's like, what's that? And he goes, well, you know, my son is scared that you might rob me. He's just being silly. Mm. Um, and she's like, okay, weird, right? And they, um, he's, like, recording her the whole time, apparently. It's a, it's a very odd story. Um, but they get to this hotel to stay to, you know, stay at overnight because it was a long trip. And um, he says, oh, bummer, you know, they only have one room available. Looks like we'll have to share. And she's like, well, you know, that's kind of weird. And goes to the front desk and they're like, no, ma'am, like there's plenty of rooms. We can get you your own separate room. And so she tries to play it cool. And she's like, yeah, you know, um, I went to them and thank goodness they had a room. And my father kind of gets upset and he, you know, pulls out his audio recorder and starts asking her, did I make you uncomfortable? Did I say anything that would make you, you know, uncomfortable? Something to that effect. And it's just really weird. And again, my dad keeps getting all these phone calls from my brother. So nothing really happens that night, thank goodness. They drive back home the next day and this friend talks to my brother and she's like, you really thought I was going to like rob your dad? And he goes, no, I think my dad killed my sister and I was afraid he was going to do the same thing to you. Oh, geez. wow. Yeah. Unbelievable. So to get into your father um, mentally, I guess, what is his mental state or what was his mental state? I know he had thought that people were following him. Uh, the union was out to try to kill him or something. Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, he had always been paranoid my whole life. Um, but, you know, he's ex-law enforcement and ex-military. So I always thought it was because of that. He was kind of like that stereoty stereotypical ex-military character you might see on a TV show, just kind of paranoid. And you're like, OK, he's quirky or whatever. Um, but of course, it goes a lot deeper than that. He manif he he basically took this um, argument he had with this electrical union that he worked for. You know, we, this is true. He worked for this electrical union. He did report unsafe working practice about having to jump on river rocks to get across a river, I believe was the issue. But um, this this causes some contention among his co-workers. You know, there's some apparently harassing phone calls, things like that, which, you know, I, I'm not going to say I don't believe, you know, these things happen. There are whole movies dedicated to union workplace violence. We know that these things happen. Um, and I'm not debating right. unions one way or the other, but I'm just saying, <laughs> I think this kind of um, contention between his co-workers and this union turned into this greater paranoia inside of his mind to the point where he thought that they were, you know, scheming for decades and decades to get back at him. Um, you know, one of the things the police found in the home was, of course, all those bombs. And then this manifesto to use it, this 98 page document where he outlines how he believed, you know, that the union was getting revenge on him. Um, by killing Alyssa, that they sent two assassins to kill Alyssa. And in return, my dad had to kill those two assassins and build all these bombs to blow up the building to get revenge. So it's it's a very long, complicated story, um, but it's, it's a huge yeah. point in this case because it sent him to prison for 10 years. Oh, and it also clearly proves that he is not stable. 
Yeah, I mean, I, w- I would say that that's pretty unstable to um, think that something that grandiose is happening to you and that y- you have to think about like what would all of those moving pieces really look like if those stories were true? That is a huge right, grand jumping conspiracy. Over some rocks. Exactly. Over, you know, you saying that they had some OSHA violations back in the 70s. Right. I just don't right. think so. Now, um, there were like 20 plus uh, statements against him, correct? Or along that lines of uh, statements about his potential abuse and even a letter from uh, Alyssa as well. Yes, there are so many people that have come forward to speak about this. And Alyssa alludes to it in a few of her letters. Um, But this started really early. You know, I think one of the scariest points about um, this abuse is that Alyssa at nine years old went to... Her teacher, which was also the the woman that my father was dating, and said, I'm having sex with my dad, um, which obviously is a huge red flag. And um, unfortunately, it, yeah, it wasn't wow. reported. Oh, my gosh. But yeah, I mean, as she grew up and, you know, they as she grew up, she told people, of course, Um And when they went back and they interviewed friends and family, you know, there were dozens of people that came forward and said that, you know, she told me that he was touching her. She told me about this story where he tried something with her. Um, It's really sad because so many people knew. I mean, my goodness, even my father called Child Protective Services and the police himself and said, my daughter is going to call and lie and say that I'm sexually abusing her. He tried to get her arrested for being bisexual. It's just, um, it's really insane. Um, So many people knew now what about um your your mom's sisters or something happened with with them as well with your father mike yes so while my mother was dying um our father sexually assaulted our mother's sister he asked her to marry him and move in and be our new mother and his new wife and um yeah it's really disgusting and really scary and there's even speculation around my mother's death and whether or not he could be involved um again Absolutely. It also shows a pattern of the type of person your your father is and was. Oh, exactly. There's a very long history of him sexually assaulting women. Jeez. No, there were uh, two detectives that were working on this, right, for a very long time? Yes. Detective Summershoe and Detective Anderson um, worked on this case for almost 10 years, and you know, I do believe that they worked it to the best of their ability. You know, by no means is the investigation perfect. I don't think a perfect investigation exists. Um, but, you know, that <laughs> I have 3,000 pages of their work. They um, they worked very, very hard on this case. Right. And, and they were just dropped just before he was released, correct? Yes. Um, that's another very strange aspect of this case is, you know, shortly before my father went uh, or prison both detectives were reassigned you know specifically one was reassigned I think a week before he got out of prison um and I I was told the entire cold case unit is being dissolved no one's working on cases that are older than a year and I'm like I don't know things okay sounds legit to me um but yeah of course I later find out that um, specifically Detective Summershoe wasn't reassigned from his cases. He was just reassigned from Alyssa's. I mean, I, I guess I can't confirm that he kept at least two of his cases um, and not Alyssa's. That seems really odd. I think so. Yeah. And they've they've still never explained to me why I was told that the entire cold case unit was being dissolved, why I was told that, you know, Detective Summershoe was getting all new cases or not working on them at all. Um, they've never explained that to me. So where's the case at this point? Are they going to 
go forward with the prosecution or are they still just kind of hoping that it goes away? I don't know. So right now, uh, Maricopa County is deciding whether or not they're going to press charges against our father for Alyssa's murder. Um, it's been 19 months, and um, I really hope to hear soon, but who knows? I mean, my goodness, it's also an election year, so the Maricopa County prosecutor right. is up for election, so who knows what that's going to look like. And and they they said that you know they, they needed a body, but there have been cases in your county where they've tried people without a body right oh yes countless cases i i haven't looked back into it for a long time but i want to say that the first case prosecuted in maricopa county with no body was like in the 1950s and what about more recently do you know uh when the moat were or or more recent one i should say um, yes. More recently, Jamie Laity and I believe Christine Mustafa. I don't think that they ever recovered her body. Um, but those were two cases where they had a ton of circumstantial evidence. They were not able to locate a body, yet they won on the murder charges. I mean, there's countless cases. The no, right. no body, no case is not a thing. I think it's a tagline that, you know, um, dramatic, you know, true crime TV shows have put out there, but that's not real in the justice system. A body, of course, helps. Um, I, w- I would love to have her body for a variety of reasons, um, but you right. don't need it to move forward. And if they needed it so much, they probably should have looked for it, which they have continuously refused to do, even when I offer them free resources. Yeah, there, there seems to be, from my perspective, enough to jump on this, even from the limited amount of information that I have about the case. Like, it, it all seems like it's right there. I agree. And it's been there. You know, as far as I know, there was no, no new evidence obtained between them telling me we're absolutely not going to do this without a witness or a body. And a week later, when they said, just kidding, we don't need those things anymore. Um... Like, as far as I know, nothing new was obtained. So what the holdup is, I or was, I really don't know. The whole thing is so unbelievable. It is stranger than so, fiction, for sure. <laughs> now, do you believe there's any chance that your father's not involved? At this point, no. Um, especially, you know, when I confronted him in person and he said... Come to the deathbed and I'll give you all the honest answers you want to hear or I'll confess to everything if the state gives me lethal injection within 10 days of that confession. For me, that really, really solidified and it, it all. I mean, that erased any doubt in my mind that he could not be involved. Right. right. That 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 was weird to say the least. That holy cow. There was uh, there was also he um, something about he was willing to testify for. Or make a statement, a formal statement for the police, right? If, like, there was a live television there, uh, and he had some other sort of demands, right? Yes. So, um, before he's released from prison, the chief of the Phoenix Police Department writes my father a letter while he while he's still in prison and um, says, "We believe that you have information that could help solve your daughter's case. Will you please talk to us?" And he responds with this six-page letter, um, you know, talking about his life and whatnot, but also outlining these terms. You know, at the end, he finally says, okay, I will interview with you. If it's live on CNN, um, if everyone is given polygraph tests from independent polygraph testers from, um, ca- from Canada, 
And he wa- he wanted mm. to interview and have these tests performed on his entire family, the detectives from Melissa's case, um, John Walsh from the National Center for Missing Exploited Children, the ATF, um, the judge in his bomb case, all these really ridiculous stipulations. Um, he But he says, you know, at that point, then yes, you can interview me after I interview all of these people. And of course, um, I, I don't even think the police ever wrote back. I think they were just like, okay, he's, he's clearly inter- not interested right, in talking. Right. Wow. Oh my word. And and there's so much more we can still get into, but obviously time's running out at this point. Um I I know you even got a hold of Thomas the Heimlich. Got his name. Heimer. Heimer, thank you. <laughs> Heimlich is a, a procedure, I believe, or something. <laughs> <laughs> get rid get your chicken even, in your throat. Right. You even confronted Thomas Heimer and and tried to make contact with him and, and talk back and forth, right? I did, yes. Um, so I wrote him a series of letters. He wrote back. We talked on the phone one time. We were ready to set up this interview. And then all of a sudden, he's gone and doesn't want to talk anymore. Um, so that's still kind of pending. I actually got a call from him about a week and a half ago that I missed. So it looks like he's still interested in talking and telling his story. Um, but, you know, he says essentially that there's a reason why he picked Alyssa. It was not by chance and that he wants to tell me the whole story. So hopefully we will hear that story. I don't know. Kidding. All right. Is there anything else you want to tell us, Sarah, before we. Well, you go? Uh, what, uh, wh- where can people find you in your, uh, in your story? What, what sort of social media would you like to, to let the people know about? Sure. Yeah. And of course we could go on for hours and hours and hours, but I think you guys did a great job with your questions. So thank you. Um, but yeah, if you guys are interested in hearing, you know, all 24 episodes and the crazy depth and details that are involved in this story, you can of course listen to Voices for Justice. Um, that is my podcast that I produced about Alyssa. You can find it everywhere you find podcasts and you can follow me on social media under Sarah E. Turney. Um, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, of course, and um, every else so yeah follow me listen to the podcast and you know all i ask is to uh, please share Alyssa's story i'm I'm not asking for money i'm not asking for donations nothing like that all i need is for people to share it the more people that share it the more people see it and the more pressure it puts on the decision makers in this case absolutely um one one quick thing what is your past work experience because you know listen to your podcast even since episode one has been outstanding you know it's it's top the line well done uh, in, in in every aspect so i'm just curious did you have a background in in media at all um not really i i have a background i i worked for usa today but i had nothing to do with their media side i um had a very long wonderful career in events and marketing so um yeah I, i'm a very good marketer but i had never touched audio before that's something i never really did so i i learned all of that on the fly making the podcast um but thank you getting good audio quality was um my top priority a great job uh, that sounds great all right sarah thank you very much for joining us tonight yes thank you very very much of course thank you and for we, having me on and sharing Alyssa's story yeah we wish you the best and hopefully there will be some resolution to this story soon oh thank you i hope so you have a good night, Sarah. All right. You too. All right, take care. All right. Bye. Bye. Just three days after recording this podcast with Sarah, 
she released this statement on her podcast, Voice for Justice. I received a phone call today, about 20 minutes ago, from Detective William Anderson of the Phoenix Police Department, and he let me know that a warrant was issued for my father's arrest, and he is now in custody and being charged with the homicide of Alyssa. This moment feels so unreal. But I wanted to come on here and say thank you to all of you, to every single person that shared this story for so many years, for listening to this podcast. Without you guys, this would have never happened. Without your support, without making this podcast successful, without you liking on social media and sharing her story and keeping this pressure on, it would have never happened. You guys are all voices for justice, and that is all I ever wanted. I cannot thank you enough. I don't have all the details right now, but once I do, I will make a longer update. But I wanted to come on here and say thank you for being my family. And thank you for caring about Alyssa as much as I do. I couldn't have gotten through this without each and every one of you. I love you guys so much. This process has been absolute hell. Absolute hell. I never, ever wanted to get on media. I never wanted to make my own podcast, but we did it, you guys. I don't know what comes next, but I'll definitely let you know as soon as I find out. But thank you, and I love you, and I'll talk to you next time. We'd like to thank Sarah for joining us tonight and for sharing her story. If you have any information regarding this case, please reach out to the Arizona State Police at 602-223-2000. Thank you for joining us, and have a good night. The search for five-year-old Taylor, Taylor Williams led investigators to Alabama this week. So we have some breaking news from Florida. An arrest has been made. After years of agony, a glimmer of hope for the family. Investigators spent hours searching through this house off Pennsylvania Avenue. What could be a major development in the search for missing Alabama teenager. Tonight, a stunning twist in the search for Taylor. Somebody out there knows something. They want to lay him to rest their way, not by somebody else's way.